We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I'm going to start by saying to follow our guest today on Twitter. His handle is at the Dragon Feeder. Chris Fenton, one of our favorite guests, is back on the podcast just in time for the Beijing, I should say the, the scenic, idyllic Beijing Olympics, author of Feeding the dragon a wonderful book that a wonderful book that i highly recommend chris welcome back to the show emily it's so good to be back on i don't even know where we start with stuff to talk about i mean the, the china conversation is just really taking on new forms and um it's always a pleasure being on with you and you've been such a good journalist covering this topic over the past couple of years well, thank you. And, you know, it's been with a great amount of help from your insights. And if, if folks haven't listened to our conversations with Chris or read any of Chris's work, which you, you should, but if you haven't before, um, Chris Feeding the Dragon lays out this story about how Chris um, got involved in Hollywood and then started helping Hollywood open up those doors to the Chinese film market in a way that was very lucrative um, and came to see the the sort of folly of that project. And Chris, the Oscars were announced uh, just yesterday. The Oscar nominations were announced yesterday. And it's interesting to sort of take a look back and we'll start with the entertainment industry here and then and then get into the Olympics and, and all kinds of China stuff. But it's interesting to look at that and look at the films that have been nominated over the course of the last 10 or so years. You worked on blockbusters like Iron Man 3, um, big, big movies. Why aren't those the kind of films that the Academy ever looks at anymore for these nominations? And I don't mean Iron Man 3 in particular, but even, you know, there, there was like Black Panther was nominated one year and this year Don't Look Up was a pretty big hit. But what's going on with the Academy? Well, number one is I'm I'm happy that Ascension, which is a documentary uh, about China and sort of the plight of the middle or the lower class trying to rise through the ranks of that society got nominated. I really wish in the same breath, the HBO documentary did also, as well as um, Revolution of Our Times, which is about uh, the Hong Kong takeover by China over the last few years. Um, but at least one out of three, that's something. Um, and hopefully we get better over time. To answer your question about why aren't blockbusters given the same type of um, critical attention when it comes to the Oscars. I mean, I think that always that goes back way in time. There's definitely a, a cinephile sort of sophistication, um, snobbery about uh, essentially the insulated, uh, you know, awards type of audience that that makes up the academy i have lots of friends in there i'm actually a voting member of several of the different um guilds but i'm not involved with the academy itself i wouldn't mind being it it's actually a very honorable thing to be a, a part of here in hollywood but i think that's part of it i mean this idea of getting behind smaller films with really um you know great filmmakers that that study the craft shoot on film versus digital or, or, you know, use concepts that are, are, are more character based or drama based rather than IP based, like a Marvel movie that tends to attract more attention from the critics and from the voters. And it's always been that way. 
You just said something that I think is a perfect segue actually into the China conversation, which is that these original sort of character-driven dramas um, are going to be attracting the attention of the Academy. And I'm thinking back to the 90s with Shakespeare in Love and Titanic, and they, we used to have an industry that would make those stories into blockbusters. These would be big budget films, um, and they weren't franchises. They weren't, you know, just taking IP and recycling it over and over again. I mean, even like Nightmare Alley does that to an extent, although it's, I think it's a great movie, but yeah, th these movies are, don't have big budgets um, and they're not getting Oscars anymore. Um, and so does that speak to something a lot of people are increasingly aware of thanks to some of the work that you have done and others have done? Does that speak to the fact that Hollywood sort of stopped for a little bit making stories that were very compelling to American audiences and started working with franchises that could be made sort of interchangeable across, you know, those those borders? Well, it's an interesting history if you look at where that really started. I mean, pre, I would say, um, 1990, there was a very sort of cowboy look at how movies were greenlit. It was done by gut. It was done by young studio executives who had green light authority and just read a script and loved it and just essentially put the machine to work on something that would cost $50 million to make and another $100 million to market and promote around the world. Um, what happened in the mid-90s was really this proliferation of uh, the way they could monetize essentially losses at the box office with home entertainment rights because of the DVD and the proliferation of the DVD, that started to wane and it actually was replaced by the international markets, which were starting to get really compelling when it came to generating revenues. I mean, you literally saw every year um, the breakdown between domestic and international go from like 80% to and 20% to 70% to 30% to, you know, 60, 40, 50, 50. And now we're at literally like 30 on the domestic side, 70 on the international. So in a way, when you think of how different markets are, the way cultures are, the way human beings are when it comes to what's in the ethos in different markets, you almost can't make money globally with really fancy Italian food. You have to make the Olive Garden. It's mm -hmm. gotta be bland enough that everybody can enjoy the non-spicy sauce and the lesser sort of quality, you know, pasta, because that's something that more of the masses will enjoy versus having some Mari Batali, you know, Michelin star type of pasta, right? Like everybody wants something that universally is accepted and works around the world. And that's sort of what happened to Hollywood. They were trying to really please every market. And the only way you can please is really to vanillify everything. That's such a perfect analogy. And if you've read Feeding the Dragon, Chris's book, you know that he actually worked at an Olive Garden. So he's very familiar yeah. with this topic. I um, do. I should have used the tiramisu um, uh, analogy, actually. But um, anyway, <laughs> I was while you were talking about that, I was thinking Taco Bell, um, you know, has its merits, but is, is definitely sort of uh, palatable to the masses. Now, on that point, um, if you could share some of maybe your experience in this, like when I mentioned Iron Man 3, I mentioned it because your book has this, uh, it tells the story of you like being in China, um, trying to premiere this film, working on this film. You talk about World War Z, you talk about Looper, you go into a lot of examples um, and, and you can sort of talk about how those are, those there were changes made to placate the CCP, like sort of things that get into censorship, the Bohemian Rhapsody type. But can you talk to us about what you saw from actually just 
kind of diluting the stories. I don't know if I've ever asked asked you this before, but from the perspective of just like how the stories were almost flattened or made more general to be more appealing to more people. Yeah, I think the mentality um, originally, obviously, was just to make the best stories possible that we thought the the domestic U.S. audience would enjoy, right? And then it moved into a global sort of market, and the idea was, okay, well, what do we vanillify? What do we make more um, approachable to the masses, no matter what market they're in, so that we can monetize it? And then when China started to come online, and that was really like 1997, whereas where the shot heard around the world when they literally blackballed studios for making Kundun, Red Corner, and Seven Years in Tibet. That was the moment where everybody's like, oh my God, China's going to be huge. So we got to think about them just in regards to a storytelling sense. But on top of it, we can't tick them off because if we take them off, we're going to be blackballed. We can't make a dollar in there with any type of business that our particular company has that could get into China. So when you look at the China market, I would say circa 2016, when it was really roaring as far as the amount of money that was being made there by Hollywood, the analysis going into greenlighting a project or even developing a project was Let's figure out a movie that will work in the U.S. and China. That's all we care about. Because if you can make that movie work in those two very different culturally, um, you know, sort of in the ethos markets, every other market will follow. Right. Like you're, if you're you're you've got that Venn diagram working perfectly and then every other market's going to fall somewhere in that concentric circle. Right. So that became the goal. And part of that goal was to make sure things were relevant culturally to the Chinese. Right. So you had to make movies that had those universal themes that people in China would identify with. But on top of it. You had to implement things that would allow you to get that movie into the market. And on top of it, also, you had to make sure nothing in that movie would be critical of China or approach sensitive topics or issues or any other geopolitical events that were ongoing at the time. Yeah. Um, And so as we're, you know, I think the first time we talked, Chris, was December of 2019. So as COVID was sort of spreading quietly um, in in, uh, China and in Wuhan and uh, other places, certainly we were talking about Mulan, which was coming out the next year, um, which was slated for a spring release that was ultimately uh, shuttered, obviously, because theaters were closed. Mulan didn't end up doing so hot in China. And we were talking about how that would be a really big test, that Disney had put all of this money into Mulan and they expected it to do exceptionally well in China. They made it a very Chinese-centric film that would play very well with Chinese audiences and seemed even more targeted to Chinese audiences than American audiences. Um, and it didn't do so well. Then we saw a lot of American movies that were made, you know, with looking towards that audience, like either get totally shut out of the country or not do well at all. Um, if, if you could talk a little bit about the pattern that we've seen um, since 2020, especially over the course of COVID. And if you think, this is a two-part question, one, what's the pattern look like? And two, do you think that's actually meaningfully sort of persuading Hollywood to maybe say it's it's not a good bet to make these changes and, and dramatically alter um, our, our content uh, just to sort of, you know, on the whim of the CCP, get into Chinese theaters? 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think one of the takeaways people have from my book is that in order to get access to the market, yeah, we had to do all kinds of premeditated censorship and proactive brand integration of China in there. But on top of it, we did a lot of actions that were teaching China how to fish. And I mean, if, you, if we wanted our movies in that market, the Chinese government said, hey, we'll give you access to our very lucrative market, but you need to teach us the process of making movies. So if you want to sell us fish, teach us how to fish. And that's what we did extremely well. And by the way, it can be rinsed and repeated across all industries. We're seeing the exact same thing occur. So one of the processes we had was really getting access to that market and teaching them below the line um, skill sets and expertise, above the line skill sets and expertises. I mean, when I first was there looking at Chinese scripts for movies, I mean, first of all, they were making their movies for like under $2 million at the time. I mean, this is circa 2008. But there were literally scripts on one page. Like they didn't know how to develop a script or a three act structure or any of that stuff. So obviously, we taught them how to do that. Now, if you made Mulan back in 2008, you could argue that the market there hadn't seen domestic productions at the level that Disney was able to do it. So by taking a mythology that was inherently Chinese, something that has been told in many forms of storytelling over the years in China and doing it at this huge blockbuster Hollywood level might've resonated in 2008. But since then they had learned how to fish. And if you take a uh, something that's inherently Chinese and try to Hollywoodify it or however you want to say it, they're going to be like, why are you doing that? We can do that ourselves with our own industry. So don't try to pander to us. And I think that's the trap that Disney stepped into. I mean, they were 10 years too late with that idea with Mulan. <laughs> and then on top of it, once they learned how to do the business of making their own films, China's government, and particularly Xi Jinping and their standing committee, were sitting there going, we don't really need Hollywood that much anymore. In fact, anything Hollywood that comes into this market only spreads aspirational qualities of democracy, you know, whether in your face or just sort of around the movies and the characters themselves. So they're slowly pushing us out anyway. So this idea of over pandering by doing something that's really, really Chinese is just not going to work anymore. That risk reward calculation is completely muddied and it's just too dangerous to step into. And I personally think it's one of the greatest things that's happening to Hollywood. Like, let's go back to storytelling, the way freedom of creative expression was meant to be protected by Hollywood and let's make great movies. And if they're fantastic, yeah, of course the Chinese will want to see it in there. And if they're or something that's critical of China, they're not going to. But let's just make the movies that we're capable of and stop thinking about the Chinese Communist Party all along the way. Have you ever stopped to wonder why internet access is so much cheaper these days? Like 30 to 40 bucks a month? Well, it's because internet service providers aren't just making money off subscription fees. They're also making money from spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and that your ISP can't get a hold of it? 
you guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server. This blocks your ISP from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, even your router, so your entire family can always stay protected. I can't stress this enough. ExpressVPN is so simple to use. I use it. I love it. You just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business. Protect it at expressvpn.com slash federalist. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist to learn more. The good folks over at Blinkist have 22 ideas for 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and give them new perspectives on their lives and the world in 2022. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable you in 2022. So how are they going to do that? Well, 22 ideas for 2022 addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this podcast. We are drowning in content. So how do we get through all of the old content, let alone the new content, to make sure we are as informed as we want to be and as we need to be? Well, Blinkist makes it pretty easy. Some of the most popular titles in their politics section right now include What Happened, Fire and Fury, A Promised Land, Fear, A Short History of Brexit, The Soul of America, The Future of Capitalism, Black Flags, The Prince, and even Letters from a Stoic. And that's what we're talking about when we say getting through new content and old content. Probably if you're like me, some of those books have been on your reading list, and it's so important to dimensionalize our understanding of new and historical events, of course, so that we can come to current events with the right perspective, especially in these very confusing times. And we all know what tech is doing to our attention spans. So Blinkist makes it easy to be a better version of yourself and to get through all of this important reading. Letters from a Stoke is a great example of something that's been on my reading list because I thought it would help me understand some of the problems that we are in right now by looking back in history. It's a confusing time. This has been on my reading list for a while, but with all the new content to sift through, it's just hard to get back to the old stuff and the new stuff and come away with the information you need to evaluate current events. Blinkist's selections make it really easy, and that is very, very helpful. I think you will all find it helpful too, and I think that we are better off as a society the more we have studied and the more reading we do. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com Federalist to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com Federalist. So that's really interesting because I also remember um, when we first talked, I think it was in our, our very first conversation, um, it was sort of a, it 
was kind of an un, you, I, I'm forgetting the phrase that you described it as, but it, it was sort of like you, you said it's an open secret or it's what nobody wants to talk about in Hollywood um, right now. But it's just sort of mutually understood um, that China has some human rights problems, but that they're also modifying scripts and pre- practicing preemptive censorship, et cetera, et cetera. So do you think that and you just said this is the best thing that could happen to Hollywood and and I agree and everything you just said makes so much sense um but is that will they meaningfully is this meaningful or is there still going to be at least for the next year or two these attempts by studios um to get big budget movies um into Chinese audiences like what timeline do you see for like actually this disentanglement really happening well, I mean, I am seeing progress. For instance, uh, my friend who we were talking about earlier, Eric Schwartzel, who's a Wall Street Journal uh, journalist, wrote a book called Red Carpet, which is sort of a third party journalist perspective of the book I wrote from first person perspective. And he's getting quite a bit of uh, love and attention from from the press and journalists and from his big publisher, et cetera. That wasn't quite as existent for me two years ago. I mean, obviously I've been out there and I've been able to carry the message nicely, but it's good to see progress in that area, both on the right and on the left. So people are becoming more and more aware of it. Now I will say what's super nefarious about just the US-China relationship in general is that everybody engaged in the US-China dynamic, whether it's military, whether it's politicians and leaders, whether it's business leaders, whether it's journalists, whether it's people in Hollywood or the NBA or athletes or celebrities, we all know how detrimental the current status of that dynamic is for the long-term health of, of, of the United States of America. We are all aware. Like we all had the slap in the face moment where we're like, wait a minute, what we thought was about growing GDP, building jobs here in America, spreading soft power democracy, all that stuff for the past 40 years, we were led to believe was what we were doing with our work. There was something that happened, some moment where we realized, oh my God, that's misguided. We are actually doing something that's not good for the country. The problem, and why I say it's nefarious or pernicious or 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 completely misguided, is the fact that a lot of people aren't speaking up about it. And they're in fact, they're continuing to keep the status quo. And that's what we're trying to build is a momentum to change it. Because back to your question, there is capitalism that can be done by doing the right thing. And by doing the right thing as a patriot of the United States of America, in the Hollywood business, it costs a lot of money to do a lot of the dances you need to do for China. (laughs) And China, quite frankly, is not rewarding anybody for doing those dances anymore. It's a complete wild card. And it, by the way, creates all kinds of gray hairs anyway for all the execs and filmmakers involved. And what's happening at the same time is consumers around the world in the West are seeing this pandering and it's starting to irritate them. And that irritation is gonna start spilling into the revenues of the studios because people like me, for instance, with the Beijing Olympics, and I love the Olympics. I can't get myself to watch the Olympics. I just can't, I cannot do it. And it drives me nuts because I love sports and I love the athletes that are competing there, but it just drives me crazy that they are there, right? Would, That's the problem. I and I ask. Think- Yeah, well, I was just going to go back really quick. Yeah, please. I think consumers are going to start punishing 
the Hollywood studios that continue to pander. So you're going to have on one side of the Pacific, the movie's simply not being monetized in China. On the other side of the Pacific, people are penalizing those studios for trying to make it work in China, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, we have developing markets. We have fantastic technology advances that are allowing us to monetize the content all around the world outside of China. And there's real money to make there. So I think there's a tipping point that's coming as a confluence of events. I don't know the moment when it really changes, but I will tell you one thing, a great example of how it could is the WTA who stood by Peng Shui's side and came out and said statements that really irked China and essentially made the WTA lose all that revenue. If markets around the world and sponsors around the world essentially looked at the WTA like a Muhammad Ali and said, you took a stand. Most people didn't even know what the WTA was, including <laughs> me. I'm not a big tennis fan, but now I think they're the greatest sports league out there. Yeah. If people actually rewarded them with capitalism, with monetization ability outside of China, you would see a lot more people follow. Well, and another interesting thing, and I think this particularly applies to, to Hollywood, and it would apply to the Olympics as well, is that if you uh, start behaving sort of more responsibly and ethically as an industry, your the quality of your product is probably going to improve for all of the, the Olive Garden reasons that you mentioned earlier. And I, I was going to ask if you were watching the Olympics, and it makes a lot of sense to me that um, you are not. But uh, that's one thing I, when our publisher, Ben Dominich, asked our staff to uh, make predictions for 2022 for his end of the year Fox News podcast. And one of mine was a real long shot, but it was that the Beijing Olympics will backfire on the CCP because it does shine a light. And we've already seen those videos go viral of CCP goons, you know, taking journalists off the air in the middle of their stand up hits. And we've seen some more attention towards those sorts of questions because they're having the Olympics there. And because, you know, this was their moment to sort of debut the new China to the world stage. It is a propaganda event. And I want to get in all of this with you because you have, have been there so many times and sort of know how this all works and you've been paying close attention. But do you think that there is a way in which in line with everything that's been happening in Hollywood, these Olympics do kind of end up backfiring on the CCP because it serves this major purpose of also shining a light on all of the bad. Yeah, I've been torn on that. In fact, I wrote a couple pieces with Captain Corey Ray at the National War College, who I lecture a soft power class for every semester. In fact, next week I'm doing it. Um, and he's been one to say, the athletes shouldn't boycott. And if there is a boycott, it should be athlete led. And he actually has also been a proponent of the idea of going there. That could create more of a focus on what's wrong in China versus actually fully boycotting it. And I can say that I do see a lot of reasons to believe in that argument. And I do think there's a lot of pushback from the West on what exactly is happening there. There's a lot of attention on the human rights issues, the national security issues, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, um, different geopolitical events because of these Olympics. And, and, and that is focusing a lot of people in the United States of America who might not even really think about China in their day-to-day -day existence are now actually thinking about China and going, wait, why are our athletes there? Why are we allowing China to promote themselves as, as this great country? So I would argue that I think you're right. There is a good train of thought there that might be the better approach in regards to what we have done over the past year by attending these games over the next two weeks. 
I would say on the other hand, it does really build a support within China, those 1.4 billion people that are overseen by 92 million Chinese Communist Party members and ultimately a Politburo. And then on top of it, the Communist Party and, and the, the, the large gathering that they have every year and the Standing Committee of Seven and Xi Jinping, it does promote their government as the best form of government. So this idea that we can somehow win over those 1.4 billion people has gotten more distant as far as a possible outcome because of these Olympics. They are very patriotic about them. It's almost in the same sort of vein of, of going to war or getting behind a nationalistic type of warlike mentality. I mean, this patriotism around the games for the average Chinese is very, very strong. That's really interesting, and it's exactly where I was going with the next question, which was, what do these games mean um, to the Chinese Communist Party, to Xi Jinping? Um, and if I can sort of even ask, based on your experience um, in China, how important are these sort of symbolic events to uh, curating or, or cultivating that sense of like national solidarity and, and pride? Um, you know, what was your, as you were there and sort of observed, you know, talking to, to folks in leadership positions on that side of the world, tell us the significance of events like this. Look, I mean, their propaganda is twofold. I mean, one is pro propelling the, the Chinese government as the ultimate government, as the leader of the world moving forward, that outward facing propaganda and sort of PR message from the Olympics is there and it's in our face and it probably isn't working to the level that they would like it to. But internally, the other prong, which is promoting how great their government is and promoting a stability among the masses in regards to any sort of outcry that we don't like communism, we want democracy. I mean, that is really working well for them. On top of it, they are touting this amazing infrastructure that they have built around these Olympics. The fact that they are able to have an Olympics in an area of the world where literally no snow falls practically. I mean, it's a real marvel that they're able to promote on a daily basis, and it's getting a lot of support internally in that country. So there's a lot of hawks um, throughout D.C. and the military and, and commerce, et cetera, who believe that one day we can get the people of China to overthrow their government. I really think that has always been a pipe dream because mm -hmm. propaganda is so strong and messaging is so controlled in there and dissension is almost non-existent because of the penalties people face. Um, but after watching or, you know, watching Twitter, some of the highlights of, of what's happening there in, in China, I do believe it's becoming even more of a pipe dream. Like they are winning over more and more support of their people. Right. And, and more and more support in other corners of the world. Um, I'm curious for your take on that. Do you think that the propaganda, there was another video that sort of went viral of the uh, the president or prime minister of Argentina in a meeting with Xi Jinping um, recently, it may have even been yesterday, where he's sort of just gushing and, and fawning over uh, the greatness of, of China. And we know that, you know, Silk Road and, and all of these initiatives that are soft power initiatives trying to lay the groundwork for um, China's future sort of dominance on the world stage. So are the Olympics um, having, in effect, 
on on that, do you think? And and how is in, in general, this is a big question, the, the sort of Chinese soft power initiatives playing out, even as their relationships with the United States starts to cool down? Yeah, I don't know if the propaganda machine of of the Olympics is necessarily winning over other countries in a way that outdoes money, right? Um, you know, if you look at uh, history, I mean, the battle of the Soviet Union and the United States to win over nations in Africa, you know, several decades ago, um, involved a lot of infrastructure building and a lot of reach out from both countries to essentially say, hey, we're here from you. We're here for you. You should be a democracy like us or you should be communism like, you know, okay, totally. just like us. It was a constant battle. And we're seeing African nations, which need infrastructure, that need resources, that need money, reaching out to China and saying, hey, you're the only one really helping us and China doing that. Now, we all know that the mission of what China is trying to accomplish in those areas is not just one of a good Samaritan or a Mother Teresa. There's obviously a lot of undercurrent that's quite pernicious. But um, they are winning the hearts and souls of those governments, and they're also um, using propaganda in those nations to say, hey, we're China, we're helping you out, people. And the people there are happy that they have things that they didn't have, say, three years ago, thanks to China. And I think Argentina is yet another example of that. And when you see what the Olympics represent, that's essentially Xi Jinping saying, hey, all of you out there who we've been helping, we expect you to show up diplomatically and we expect you to be on camera with us um, showing your love and support of our nation <laughs> for the world, because that is a very powerful image and they are really good at PR. I mean, in fact, I sometimes wonder if the Ministry of Propaganda might be better than some of the Hollywood publicists <laughs> when it comes to like promoting somebody to the next level. I mean, look at Goo, the you know, the skier that essentially changed from being an American competitor to a Chinese competitor. I mean, her worth, her profile among 1.4 billion people has gone from zero to a million in literally, um, you know, 10 days. It's pretty, pretty impressive. And that's all because the machine has gotten behind her. What did you think about the Putin, she, uh, conversation what, what do you generally i mean i know you don't necessarily focus on russia um but what have you thought of of that relationship's uh, evolution um over the course of the biden administration well it's uh, it's funny i you know i came across russia a lot because where i stayed uh, the hotel i stayed at when i was working in beijing was right in the central business district where a lot of eastern russians mm. stayed and these were eastern russians with lots of money and I, and i always was curious where where is this money coming from and it turned out it was natural resources and minerals and and so on and so forth that happened to be up in the eastern russian region that china was buying in bulk right and that's how they made their money. And it's obvious that there's like a transactional business relationship between the uh, between Russia and China that's very strong. In fact, China is a very, very big consumer of natural resources from Russia. But then on top of it, there's the enemy of your enemy is your friend dynamic, where Russia is obviously not that excited to be 
the United States of America's friend, or quite frankly, Europe's, nor is China. So the fact that the two of them both hate the same thing has really brought them together in a good way. Yeah, and it it does seem also to aid in the uh, proliferation of sort of anti-American sentiments um, on the the world stage. And I remember I wanted to ask you about this. There was the meeting in Anchorage with Blinken and Sullivan where the CCP repeated what sounded like very far left American ideas about America and about equality and, and, you know, all of human rights and all of that good stuff, which is absurd coming from any representative of China. Um, But the Biden administration's response was, I I thought, left a lot to be desired. I I don't think it pushed back as strongly and, you know, with a a full-throated endorsement of the United States in the way that it should have, especially in that context. But um, I wanted to ask you about your evaluation of the Biden administration. We have seen, uh, I think, some good and some bad um, over the course of the last year. But a year in, what would you grade uh, Biden on this issue in particular? Well, and by the way, that that Anchorage, you know, the arguments that China used in Anchorage, where essentially it was like, well, look at your own country and all those different things. I mean, that's that's why I appreciate you bringing up my Twitter handle, because I have been overtaken by 50 cent bots telling me about, well, your country is this and you're, you know, that kind of person and you hate Chinese people. It was it's sort of crazy. Right. So they're using that sort of, well, look at you before you look at us type of argument. And it it didn't make the United States look all that good. We, we were caught a little bit off guard by, by the coverage of that and sort of how it came out around the world. And I'm glad we've sort of modified our approach a little bit. Um, in regards to grading Biden, I would say, um, if you fell asleep before the last election and you woke up today and you looked at sort of our relationship with China and sort of our policies towards China, you might presume that Donald Trump won a second term because Biden hasn't really changed anything that Trump put into, um, you know, put into action. He hasn't been more dovish than than Donald Trump. Um, I think Biden and his administration, particularly the Commerce Secretary and some of the people under her, really do want to get more difficult on China and really try to level the playing field. I think you're seeing the SEC wanting to do that. I think you're seeing the Pentagon wanting to do that. I think you're seeing Congress wanting to do that. And with all of those allies around being hawkish around Biden, you would think that that could propel him to get really serious about addressing this problem. The one issue is that there's one ally to China that's just as strong, if not stronger than all those other hawkish allies. And that's the business community and the Mm -hmm. business lobby in Washington, DC is fighting really, really hard to keep the status quo alive. There is just so much money going back and forth, whether it's on wall street, whether it's in the industry, you know, industrial manufacturing businesses, um, you know, even microchips and technology, there's just so much back and forth and so much at stake for the business lobby that that one element, that one silo, that one particular, you know, side of the equation is able to fight off all the others that are trying to right the wrong. 
Mm. Well, and that brings us back to, I think, the most important question since you uh, were working on this book and since the book was published, which is that there does seem to be an evolution in the American business community, at least in Hollywood. And then you see it sometimes in other places. You you see it in um, certain moves about supply chains and, and sort of trying to get supply chains out of Xinjiang because of legislation and just PR um, and, and all kinds of problems that that can cause. But do you think, um, I, I guess I'm wondering how, so like the Houston Rockets, for instance, uh, their games are now back on in China. They were, after the Daryl Morey situation, they were sort of pushed off the air, and I believe they're they're replaying them now. So is as, as Hollywood is this microcosmic case study um, that has shown a really interesting evolution where people have sort of said, maybe this isn't a bet that's worth it anymore. And as tensions between the United States and China continue to mount, do you think that's going to happen more and more in different industries, even though the pull of doing business in China is, of course, cheap labor? Um, and you can you can take advantage of cheaper labor. You can take advantage of labor laws. You can take advantage of all kinds of different things, um, natural resources. But do you think that bet is going to keep looking worse in industries outside of Hollywood um, where it's just going to start to be it's it's way too much of a hassle to do business in China for all kinds of reasons um, in different industries. Well, I would say purely on the commercial side of things, on the commerce side, you know, how big that market is for all kinds of goods and services. I think you're going to see the exact same story play out with every single industry and business, which is, you know, you wanted access teach them how to fish, you can sell the fish there. And eventually they learn how to fish so well that they don't need your fish anymore in the market and you're shut out. And that is gonna happen with every single global business and industry out there. Number two is on the manufacturing front, I think we, we have seen the real problem with having supply chain in a country that you don't necessarily get along with. Mm. So I would argue that anything that has some sort of national security interest has to get out of that country ASAP, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's microchips, whether it's technology, whether it's, you know, medical equipment, all of that stuff, we have to get in friendly markets or back here in the United States of America. Now, T-shirt manufacturing, toy manufacturing, things that aren't national security issues. Yeah, great. Go play that arbitrage of terrible, you know, workers' rights and no pollution regulations and all that kind of stuff. And just hope that something doesn't really happen where all trades shut down and all your supply is stuck over there. Right. But um, outside of, you know, outside of that non- you know, national security area of goods and services, I would argue everything else on the manufacturing side, we need to move out. And when it comes to commerce, you know, people are just buying their time, right? Like you should know that you're going to be shut out of that market at some point. So you need to start prepping your investors and your shareholders. And the fact that China is not going to be the thing that you mentioned 50 times on your quarterly earnings reports, like (laughs) start weaning off and start getting smart. So it reminds me actually of John Kerry saying, uh, you know, we in order to tackle climate change, we are not really going to talk about the Uyghurs. This is sort of the bargain that we're making. We have to we will never be able to tackle the problem of climate change if we are hassling China about its treatment of the Uyghurs. 
That's an interesting sort of bet to make because it's it's betting that China actually cares. And I know China has taken steps to address its, you know, its national carbon footprint, of course. Um, but is it smart for Americans, be they in government or business, to bank on, on China cooperating at all? Um, that's sort of more, we've heard that actually even more on the right, this call for like, you know, you don't have to be so hawkish on China because the more cooperative we can be with them, um, the more we can sort of cool these these very simmering tensions and, and maybe sort of, you know, squelch them before they become any sort of full-blown military conflict or war or whatever. And in order to do that, you have to cooperate. So I guess I'm curious for your your take on whether that's, again, it's a general question. I started on climate change and then made it broader, but but I think people relying on good faith cooperation from the Chinese government at all, it, it seems a bit naive. I, um, no one knows what's in Xi Jinping or the standing committee's head. So I'm just going to, my gut is this. China's going to do what's in their best interest. They have food scarcity, they have water scarcity, and they have energy scarcity. If they can find ways to make those plentiful enough for 1.4 billion people that's also good for the environment or good for climate change, they'll do it. Mm. But if they can't, all bets are off and there's no cooperation available, right? Like the thing that was really interesting, and I will tell you right now, I've seen the benefits of it. Beijing used to be the worst place for pollution. You right. could not breathe there. In fact, I talked about You're from it. LA. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I talk about it in the book. Like we happened to have that Iron Man three premiere, like during the worst pollution I'd ever seen. Um, there were rumors that the Beijing government, this is sort of crazy, but there were rumors back then that they might move the capital to another part of the country because the government leaders that were a part of Beijing were hating the fact that they were living in such filth. Well, mm -hmm. that leaked out and it created huge outcry. Like, oh, you're just going to leave us here in the filth of Beijing and you're just going to go to some nice area of Sanya or some hour in the Xinjiang province, right? So they immediately put the kibosh on that. And instead, what they did is they started seeding clouds. They started making sure they were moving more into solar, into wind power, et cetera, et cetera. Not because John Kerry or the United States was saying, you're a climate change problem you need to address. It was more because of their self-interest at cleaning up the air there. And I've seen, I mean, the last time I was in Beijing because of COVID was in late 2019, just prior to just prior to the pandemic. And the air was super clean in Beijing. Both times I was there, um, there's it seems to be more water than I'd ever seen. There were ferns growing up by the Great Wall. And that's because they're seeding the clouds. Like they're doing things that are actually making a difference. And it's pretty crazy and it's pretty remarkable. But they are doing it simply out of self-interest. It has nothing to do with what we're telling them. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. And Chris, I want to wrap up with a question. Um, uh, you were you were mentioning that you've been getting the 50 cent bot attacks. And I'm curious, um, even more generally, what the response has been like since you wrote the book. And um, I'm not just talking about in Hollywood or in America, but sort of how, ha how difficult has it been um, for you to take this message to big audiences? Have you faced any major backlash from China, from American businesses? And then the second part of that question is, do you think people in, in Hollywood, and maybe you've had these sort of conversations already, sort of uh, n know now that you were right to be raising that alarm uh, just a, a couple of years ago. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is like on a hawk, on a dove to hawk scale, I'm probably like a six and a half, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not, you know, a, a friend of mine, Matt Pottinger. I'm not as hawkish as him or a Steve Bannon or Raheem or any of these guys that are super on on the hawk side of things. I'm very practical about it. Like, we cannot decouple from China, but we can strategically decouple from China, and we need to. And I don't want to shut down trade, and I don't want to shut down cultural interaction with, with China, because without that, we go into a Cold War environment that's way worse than it is today, and eventually into a war mentality, and who knows where that ends up. We don't want to be there. So we need to have inter interaction. And I am still very close friends with lots of Chinese that live in China that I worked with, that have been friends with. Like, this is not about the people of China. This is about the Chinese government. It's also about our government. And it's about the Western government. And it's about addressing a problem that is completely unbalanced. And I think What's happening is that I do have quite a bit of interaction with the Chinese government, at least with some of the organizations I'm involved with. And I'm still invited to quite a few Zooms and even dinners at at different diplomats' houses, right? So I think they see me as a practical hawk, one that does not want war, but is also slightly being listened to a little bit because the pure doves, I think, are now not listened to. They they seem outdated and they seem like they're maybe shills for the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> so I think the only reason that that I'm still around and listened to and hasn't been shut out of a lot of the stuff that goes on between the US and China is the fact that I am practical. Like I don't want war and I do want interaction, but it's got to be rebalanced. And and uh, I think a lot more joining that crusade and and we're gaining ground, which is good. Yeah. Um, I think that that sounds like a fair evaluation. Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, follow him on Twitter so uh, you can uh, dilute the uh, attacks by the 50 Cent bots. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it always, Emily. Keep up the great work and, um, you know, I'm happy to come back anytime. Oh, we love having you, Chris. You're absolutely one of uh, my favorite people to talk to. You can go into such detail and speak from experience. So it's it's always wonderful to catch up. Feeding the Dragon is the book. I can't recommend it enough. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Today.